Yep. Hello and welcome to Let the Bird Fly, a podcast about living freely in a world given back to us. We are here in the studio to record a different kind of podcast. Wisconsin Lutheran College, like all universities, have suspended face-to-face education due to the spread of the coronavirus. Online education is the norm for a while. So Dr. Wade Johnson and I have decided to team up and record some audio for our students in lieu of classroom lectures. It's not ideal, but we think our discussions will be better than hastily made videos in which students have to look at our ugly mugs as we drone on without the benefit of a live audience. If you are not a student, we hope that this will still be beneficial to you. And even though it's not an exact classroom experience with visuals and lively discussion, we hope that these episodes will give you an insight into the type of fun we can have here at WLC. If you are a student, uh, please know that uh, these lectures um, are going to be online at Let the Bird Fly. We'll send links to all of that, but you may want to subscribe. Um, to the feed and you can get everything you you need for these lectures and uh, each lecture it's going to be under the the title uh, COVID-19 online learning and for each class you'll have your own picture plus a title so this class is Theology 105 Intro to Scripture and we're going to have a nice picture of uh, Rembrandt uh, of Jesus and to be clear so this is Dr. Johnston by the way Hello, freshman. Um, because I'm learning this as we go. So far, I figured out how to have the pictures appear on the website. So if you go to the website and go to episodes, the pictures will appear. I'm working on how to get them to appear in iTunes. Um, our co-host, Peter Hermanson, knows how to do much more of this. So he'll be tinkering and undoing all the things I do wrong. So ideally, those pictures will also show up on iTunes or Spotify or whatever. But if they don't, be looking for the heading for your class. And I'm going to send a link out to you each for each class period. So you have multiple ways to uh, be engaged there. If you are a normal subscriber to our podcast, uh, we do apologize that you're going to get all of these um, all of these episodes or sessions, however we want to call them, into your feed. Uh, you can bypass them, of course, if you want. But we think that uh, there'll be some good content there. And while you're hunkered down here uh, during this uh, pandemic, maybe you just want to listen to uh, to us anyway. And so don't un- don't unsubscribe. Yeah, please us. don't unsubscribe. You can change your subscription settings so you're not downloading all of them, um, only the most recent or something like that. So so don't go away. So this session is going to be for our freshman class. It's called Theology 105: Introduction to Scripture. And just for our other listeners besides our students. This is uh, 100 miles per hour, the whole Bible in a semester. It's a lot of reading, a lot of work. We do have to skim over quite a bit of stuff. Uh, the students do do a reading. They, they read uh, really a good portion of the, of the Bible, just about all of the New Testament, uh, all of Genesis, most of Exodus, and quite a bit of, of stuff from the history of Israel as well. And so our sessions day today are just kind of to highlight some of the things. So we're not, this is not the only time that they are going to get um, the Bible um, uh, just too much to, to go through in our, in our short class periods. So it's just kind of things that I can try to point out and make things that are interesting. We Guess start, what, Mike? Go ahead. 5.7 mag quake in, in Salt Lake City. Yeah. So if, our, uh, if the Peels are listening, we hope you got power. You're doing all right. We have quite a few listeners in Salt Lake, so we, we are 2020 is you. an interesting year. So far, so so far, so interesting. Yes. 
It's good. It'll be fine. That's a Chinese curse, isn't it? That may you live fine. in interesting times. Why would you go there? Why would you go there? I'm just saying it's not. I mean, it's been interesting why would you say Chinese curse right here? I think that's offensive oh, not, in this. No, I'm, you not, know, I'm I, not attaching it all with the pandemic. For those freshmen who don't know Dr. Johnson yet, I apologize right now. This is not uh, going to be the first time that and I And this apologize. is, is going to make no sense to you freshmen because this is going to conversations we had earlier about right. Twitter. <laughs> we don't call it the Chinese virus. That would be offensive. But our president was defending and calling it that. So that's, that. the, that's yes. the joke. It, it, there's no reason to go there. So anyway. Our first lesson in Unit 3, I put together the nativities, and, and it sounds weird to have a plural nativities, but, but especially in Luke, we talk about the nativity, well, only in Luke, we talk about the nativity of St. John and the nativity of then Jesus Christ, and then we'll get a little bit into John the baptizer too. And what Luke tries to do here is, I think he does what we might call step parallelism. So if you have your books open, uh, your Bibles open to Luke chapter 1, you'll see there's going to be uh, an introduction, but then there's going to be a story about John, and then there's going to be a story about Jesus, then there's going to be a story about John, then there's going to be a story about Jesus. And I think what Luke is trying to do there is to tell us that we are, we're, we're transferring into something new. And Elizabeth and Zachariah that you read about, uh, the parents of John the Baptist, <laughs> They're kind of like the last Old Testament figures. And even John the Baptist is kind of like, he's like Elijah, right? He, he, he is that uh, rugged kind of prophet who speaks truth to power. And he looks kind of old and raggedy. And he's kind of a, the last vestige of the Old Testament as we now get into the New Testament. And in each case, there's going to be um, a parallel comparison so there's going to be the annunciation or announcement of John's birth, and there's going to be an announcement of Jesus' birth, and there's going to be the birth of John and then the birth of Jesus. In each way, there's going to be a comparison, but Jesus is better. So for instance, Elizabeth is old and barren, and it's a miraculous birth, but not as miraculous as a virgin birth. And if you remember, we connected uh, the visitation already in the Old Testament with King David, bringing the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem and how it stayed in the hill country of Judea at Obed-Edom's house for three months and how David said after Uriah was killed when he touched the Ark as it stumbled, how could the Ark of the Lord ever come to me? And how in the story of a Mary who was pregnant with Jesus came down to visit her friend Elizabeth in the same hill country, stayed there three months, and Elizabeth said almost verbatim to what David said a thousand years earlier, how could the mother of my Lord ever come to me? And so this gives us a big question here that there seems to be something going on here. The presence of God is on the move. And so, uh, Wade, I'd like to ask you th this question. We have th this, this presence of God is on the move here from the Ark of the Covenant to the temple, to the womb of Mary, and now to the person of Jesus Christ. This is where we go and we see God. What are the ramifications going from old to new, from B.C. to A.D., that the presence of God on the move uh, brings about to the world? Yeah, it's interesting, and um, hopefully the sound is okay, Mike. I realized I had this headset thing, like, kissing my lips before was why I was so loud. So um, the uh, an interesting thing, if you look at the early church, and one of the reasons Mary becomes more prominent in the church over centuries is as there were debates about the divinity of Christ. And divinity of Christ uh, relates to the presence of God because if Christ is God and he's present, then obviously this matters. Uh, it became very common to depict Jesus and Mary's womb 
uh, giving a blessing. And now keep in mind, this is not three-dimensional art. It was, you know, the best they could do at the time. Um, but that was an important teaching then, is that that child who was in the womb of Mary was God. We see John the Baptist leap in his presence, and we can unpack that maybe um, another time. I, I don't mean to give us a rabbit hole. <clears throat> um, but the uh, the presence of God, this important shift, um, is that now God is personally present in the flesh in, in Christ. And so we think of his incarnation, and I always tell my students um, to use Taco Bell Latin for incarnation. <clears throat> uh, right? If you get something con carne, it's with meat. Um, so Christ's incarnation, he's, he's come into the meat, He's come into the flesh uh, to be with us. And so in the New Testament, when the word is being preached, um, and of course we speak about the real presence in the, the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, uh, Christ is present in the same way. And yet we know this presence because it is Christ's presence uh, is a gracious presence. And it's one that is inviting in a way that it's, you know, Uriah touches the ark. and, and Don't and, touch God. Right. <laughs> but now God says, come to me. Take and eat, take and drink. He comes and grabs your ears in the preaching of the word. With water, he comes to you. And so this gracious and merciful presence is one that, that bids us to come. This is not Mount Sinai where even the beast who touches it shall die. Um, but this is God humble on the cross in the appearance of weakness. Um, and I think that's an important thing for us to keep in mind. Yeah, and one way that you know the, I, I think about the presence of God is on the move, and the footsteps of God shake the world. And so, we really—I mean—we still think about time as BC before Christ and AD in the uh, Anno Domini, the year of our Lord. Um, whether we live in the secular world or not, we can't shake this. One way that He mixed up the world is that there was this. <clears throat> Uh, census that was called by Caesar Augustus, the most powerful person in that hemisphere of the world, if not the world um, all around at the time, certainly the most powerful person in the Mediterranean, and that was Caesar Augustus. And so we see that Caesar Augustus was moved to issue a decree to count the people of his, um, of his uh, empire uh, so that they would be taxed. And people had to go to their, their ancestral home. And so we see Mary and Joseph traveling from Galilee by the Sea of Galilee in a town called Nazareth, going down to Bethlehem. If you remember, that is um, <clears throat> because they were from the house of Jesse. Remember, King David uh, came from Jesse's family in Bethlehem. You remember uh, Samuel having going there to anoint uh, David, who was going to take over for Saul in the, in the kingdom of Israel. And notice also that Luke is very historical here. He's not talking uh, just in flowery terms here, like once upon a time, or here's a story that kind of gives us some deeper meaning, although it does. It's not mythos in the classical yeah. sense. And so it is history. In fact, Luke has been called a great, a uh, 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 high-grade uh, historian. You know, if you're making up a lie... If you're making up a myth or telling a story, you don't mention Caesar Augustus. You don't mention Bethlehem. You don't mention Quirinius, governor of Syria. We don't need to know that this was the time when Quirinius was governor of the larger um, uh, state, county, however they wanted to call it, territory uh, that was that's, that Palestine was in called Syria. We don't need to know that. And yet, and yet Luke tells us, because he's saying, this is a claim on reality. This really happened. Um, there's, so there's no room in the inn. 
because there's many people coming to be counted in the census and to be taxed. Um, and so uh, Jesus is going to be born maybe in like a, uh, it's going to be in, in a, a makeshift sort of uh, bed for him. Um, he's going to be laid in a manger, a feeding trough uh, for animals. It's going to be out with the, with, with the animals in the barn, maybe a cutaway cave or something like that. And um, we see, again, although the Bible is history, this is the, the, the Bible is claiming this stuff really happened. It's also full of imagery and poetry at the same time. And so you see Bethlehem, which means the house of bread. And you see Jesus, who is going to be laid in a manger, the feeding trough, the, the bread trough for the animals. And he's going to be later called the bread of life. He is the one that gives us life. And so we have this beautiful imagery going along with just Luke stating the facts, saying this is what happened. And then you have the shepherds that come and visit. They are going to be the proclaimers. Uh, notice that God again follows his modus operandi, where he is going to use the ordinary to accomplish the extraordinary. So this huge event, the event that changes time, the footsteps of God are changing the world. It's going to be shepherds who are going to proclaim this. And of course, then you have the angels coming down and saying, peace on earth and goodwill towards men. And what they mean by that is, Literally peace, the Prince of Shalom, the Prince of Peace is here on earth. It's not just a call to to put down our weapons, although that certainly would be the the honest and decent result of God coming down and and, and giving us salvation. Um, but it is about literally a peace away from sin and death that God is going to give us through the person Jesus Christ. And then Mary ponders. I wonder what she thought about that when she was the one who brought about, um, helped bring about uh, the salvation of the world through her giving birth. She is then fulfills the promise given to Eve that from her offspring would come salvation. She doesn't play a part in redemption herself as if she does it, but she certainly is elevated high to be the one chosen to bring about to give birth to the God-man, Jesus Christ. But then I made you read John chapter 1. It's a totally different kind of take on this, on this nativity of, of, of Jesus. And we have these words from John, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. This is quite a different scene there. And I think we need to know a little bit of some Greek philosophy and only to really get what John is talking about here. John at this time was working uh, in and around Ephesus. Uh, um, he uh, was eventually exiled to this island called Patmos where he uh, was revealed uh, to Jesus Christ from Jesus Christ, this beautiful picture of the end that we get in the last book of the Bible, Revelation. And in that town, Ephesus, a few hundred years before, there was a Greek philosopher called Heraclides. And even if you don't know Heraclides, you know Heraclides because you've heard one of his most famous sayings is that you can't step in the same river twice. So if I step in a river and I step out and I step right back in it, even if it's two seconds later, the river's different because the water's flowing. And he seems to say that everything's in flux, so we can't even know truth. Who knows what's going on? But Heraclides also said, don't listen to me, 
listen to the logos in this crazy influx world, that there's still an order. There's still something there. And that's where we get the term logos. Maybe, Wade, if, uh, to hear your voice a little bit, maybe you want to unpack the word, the Greek word logos for us and how it connects. How can Jesus be called the logos? Yeah, the idea of, of logos, uh, it's perhaps easy to, or easier to think of a, in English the word logic, right? Um, or all we, the ologies, you know, biology. Yeah. Right. If we think of someone being logical, though, we think of them being rational or reasonable and that term logos in Greek thought was kind of the reason, the <coughs> rationale that upholds all things are true. It's it's that which ties the world together um, and gives it its sense of order. And so when John, and now, and there's debates about when John in the beginning of his gospel calls Christ the logos, if he's referring to the Greeks, I tend to think he is, right? At least the, his audience would have perked up their ears, right? right. Yeah. So when he refers to Christ as the uh, the logos, um, he is talking about the Christ is that logic, that re- reason which upholds all things. All things are true. All things that are true are true in uh, in Christ. And so uh, this is that which gives the world its order, that which underlies all truth then we find in the manger in Christ. Um, and here we see how reason and faith relate, right? Because that seems very foolish that we should find that in a manger of all places in Bethlehem. Uh, but Luther will say then, faith then thus begins in the manger. We don't start um, with speculation and try to reason our way to heaven. God has come down in the meats, in the flesh, uh, and we begin there. And then we use our reason as we read the scriptures, right? We we pay attention to history and grammar, um, but we know God as he's revealed himself to be. Yeah, and so if, if you are a Greek person and you're thinking about, like, there's something out there that orders this thing, but we can't quite put our finger on, and John comes and says, in the beginning was the Logos. It's translated in our Bibles as word, in the beginning was the Logos, um, and the Logos with, with God, and, the, and the, the Logos was God. Which is critical, yeah. Right, and then later in verse 14 he says, and the Logos made his dwelling among us. Think of the tabernacle uh, of the Old Testament where this is where God's dwelling was. Now it is in the person Jesus Christ. And so John seems to say, Lugus, I met him. It's a person. And I go so far as to say, because we know that all things are created through Jesus Christ, who is the word, right? God spoke the word in the beginning, let there be light. That he's the reason up is up and down is down and one plus one equals two and not three. And so Jesus becomes this orderer. And we have this kind of contrast too with, with, um, Zechariah and Elizabeth. Um, uh, so kind of going backwards here a little bit, back to Luke chapter 1. Um, you have Zechariah, who is a priest, and he was a part of the priestly caste. He would have been one who worked at the temple. And it, it may be, we don't know this for sure, but there's if we kind of think about how many priests are there, and there's really only one priest that goes into the into the holy place and then only the high priest once a year and then the most holy place. We don't know all the details, but this may have been the only time Zechariah, this day that is explained in Luke chapter one, this may have been the only time that Zechariah gets to do the priestly action. He walks into this 
this majestic room that has been he's been waiting so long to to go into in his old age and and he makes sure the incense is burning so it's smoking it smells different and in the through the smoke you see uh the candelabras the menorahs that uh, symbolize the, uh, god being the light of the world flickering through the smoke and there's the bread of presence there and then all of a sudden this angel comes and says you're going to have a boy right? And if there is any time that you could believe in something impossible, it would be in that room at that time in this mystical, beautiful place. But Zechariah does not believe it, right? And so we have this, uh, it's easy to believe when God comes down and says, boom, but it's hard to believe when God hides himself as he does in the person Jesus Christ, right? This cute little baby boy actually is true God. This cute baby boy came to die, and so Zechariah does not believe, and he is given empirical evidence that this is going to be true. And the empirical evidence is that he's not going to be able to speak, so he is struck mute until his son is born. And uh, I'm sure Elizabeth was very happy that during her pregnancy that her husband couldn't say anything. But Zechariah is not able to talk, and he comes out to give the blessing, and he can't talk, and the people are, what's going on? And then they realize something spiritual, something mystic, something otherworldly has occurred. So nine months later, in that nine months, that's when we have the story of Mary, who was also pregnant, who had also been visited by angels, comes down and visits it, her cousin Elizabeth, who is now, this older woman is now pregnant. When she finally gives birth to this boy named John, who we know as John the Baptist or John the Baptizer. That's when Zechariah finally is able to speak. In fact, uh, it's not until uh, uh, the, he is born and the people are wondering what his name's going to be. And Elizabeth said, his name is going to be John. And the people say, there's nobody in your family that's named John. And, and Zechariah gets a tablet and says, his name is going to be John, right? This is the authority figure right here. And he's able to speak again and sings a song of praise. And then, and then we realize that John is going to be the one who is going to be a special kind of kid. And right from the beginning, he is, he is be something different. And then another contrast, we have the contract, uh, contrast of young Mary, who is pledged to be married to this seemingly older man, Joseph, and she becomes pregnant. And uh, Joseph is going to be a stand-up guy, and he is going to divorce her quietly. It would have been great shame. He could have, he could have, probably had had her arrested, beaten, stoned to death, right? Um, but he 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 tries to treat her right, and is going to divorce her quietly because clearly she's had an affair. But he is told by the angel that this is not an affair; that this she is carrying, she is carrying the Son of God. And Mary herself had been visited by Gabriel as well. We call this the Annunciation, the announcement of the birth, that she is going to carry the Son of God, the Messiah. And she believes, like Zachariah doesn't, but she believes, right? This young, this young girl. And we have another, another instance of a female kind of example of faith or a female, if you want to say, being elevated into the story, um, in the story of salvation. And uh, Mary humbly uh, accepts this, and she knows that this is going to be something different, and that's why she ponders those things. And uh, the, the question becomes, maybe we shouldn't be asking this question and going to the mind of God, but how is she impregnated? right? How does this work? And we've seen through the Old Testament all of these miracle babies, these barren women, and it's all leading up to this 
actual miraculous birth. It's it's one thing for a postmenopause woman who has not had a child to have a child. Wow. But we can still kind of figure out that it's a miracle of science, but it's still science. This one, this one we can't even figure out. And so uh, Luther and other theologians have said, well, she was impregnated by the word of God, right? The Holy Spirit came and that is where we get Jesus Christ. Maybe totally going in a different section, we should just mention this. Both in Matthew and Luke, we have these genealogies and maybe Luke, uh, Wade, you want to just maybe a couple sentences on why do we have these genealogies? Why do I need to know that Mary was the, Mary and Joseph were the son of David, who was the son of Jesse and all the way back, either, uh, you know, all the way back to Adam or back to, back to a more Jewish um, David kind of thing. What what is that? What are those are all about? I, I think one one of the first things that comes to mind is God is a God who gives promises and wants to be held to them. Um, and so the evangelists are demonstrating that this is the keeping of God's promise. Right. This fits the things that God has promised. Um, this is how God's promise has developed. This is the line through which it's come. I think secondly, as you've said. Um, this isn't just myth. Um, this is history, right? The, here is his ancestry.com, you know, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Here is the genealogy of the Savior. You can go check these things out. And keep in mind at this time when the evangelists are writing, people at that time were able to go ask questions and check things out. Um, now, they didn't have a, a da- database online, but these are names that were familiar um, people who were familiar. And so I think it's a demonstration as well of this is a historical or an historical Jesus um, with historical roots uh, that are in accord with God's promises. God uh, doesn't want us just willy-nilly assuming things. Um, he demonstrates clearly in his word what we should hold to. We should test the spirits. And so this was a means for people to look and say, this absolutely does accord with what was said in the Old Testament. And, and I, Also, too, just the genealogy includes a bunch of sinners that God chose say, to use yeah. for our good. And, and that's a reminder as well that um, I just did a video today on Romans 9, right? Who God chooses isn't always who we would choose, um, but God's election is gracious and merciful. And so he uses even these sinners uh, to bring about the Savior. And, and to embarrass uh, uh, a Jewish audience. And, and this is not being anti-Semite. This is showing Anti-Semitic, or, yeah. that this is showing that this is for sinners, right? Why would you bring up, like, you know, if you're doing your Ancestry.com thing, you know, maybe you mention, you know, your great uncle Frank who happened to be, you know, like a, I don't know, you know, my mom clan literally whatever. messaged me yesterday. <laughs> I shouldn't say literally, but uh, one of my ancestors was one of the witches put on trial in Salem. Really? But she wasn't killed. <laughs> so what did she, what did, what was her compromise? What was her plea agreement? They just eventually let her go, I okay. guess. I don't know why, but. That's crazy. And then I. We think I also had a, one of the preachers on the Mayflower. Oh, yeah. Wow. It was also a, But, like, if you had, like, a Ku Klux Klan member, you'd be like, mm, let's not highlight that one. We don't write one. that in the scrapbook. Right? But, but, but Matthew does. Matthew says, oh, remember Rahab Well, the none of them were Klan members, right. but I get your point. Yes. <laughs> uh, clearly not. But you know what I mean? Like, this is, this is for sinners. Right. This is for sinners. And as we've said throughout the, uh, uh, the semester, that... God is keeping the Jewish people separate for to fulfill this promise of family, land, Savior. And once that fulfilled, you don't need the land and the specific family being a hedge around them anymore. This is not to say, oh, the Jewish people have served their purpose. No, the greatest glory is that everybody gets to be Jewish now because they get to be the true Israel by faith in their in, in the, the Jewish son, Jesus Christ. And this Jesus is the Christ. comfort for us that... 
God's election, his choosing of people, is rooted entirely in himself and his love and his gracious plan, and not in us, because otherwise we'd be tempted to look at those people and find something in them that we think we can replicate or imitate so that God will love us, and that's the opposite of what God wants us doing. We can look to them for examples, don't get me wrong, but God's love is rooted in himself, and that's what makes it sure and certain. Speaking of Jewishness, uh, there uh, we have only been talking about Jewish people, and uh, uh, and yet this Jesus is supposed to be for everybody. Um, and so we have this uh, curious scene where we have the visit of these magi from the East, non-Jewish people, Gentiles, we call this the epiphany. <laughs> Um, the Magi are able to find their way because they have been uh, they have been maybe doing a little bit of astronomy kind of thing, watching the stars and stuff like that. But they they have heard about this message, no doubt, from the, the Jewish people that have been carried off into exile in Babylon. They know about these things. They are believers in Yahweh, the true God, it seems. And they are led by a star to go west. And there they are going to look for this king. They've been told that there's going to be a king of the Jews who's going to be more than the king of the Jews. And so when they get there, uh, much like Naaman, when he visited um, Elisha, he went to the king of Israel and said, uh, you know, I'm not spying here. This is, I'm not doing reconnaissance for a foreign government. I have something to, to seek from your, your, holy, your holy men. Um, and he finally gives permission to go to Elisha. So the visit of the Magi, they go to the capital city, Jerusalem, which is, it seems to make sense. That's where the star has led them out to the west. Uh, the capital city is where the new king is going to be born. But there's another king, Herod, an Idumean, so a cousin of the Jewish people from Judah, Idumean, um, on our map is a little bit uh, south of, of, of the Salt Sea. And uh, the specific name king was not what the ruler of Palestine always had. Um, it may be a governor. We'll see that later. It may be a tetrarch or something like that. But the people in Rome who set up these kind of vassal kings, these representative kings from the people, had specifically given the name of, of king to Herod, the title. And so we have a long line of Herods. Um, they, they take those names, uh, the family name. But this one specifically called himself king and had the right to do that because Caesar, the Caesar in Rome said, this is the king, this is going to be the title. And so when the Magi come and say are looking for the king, King Herod says, uh-oh, right? There is going to be a rivalry here. There's going to be an imposter for the throne. And he plays it kind of cool. He says, oh, this is very nice. Let's find out where he is so I too can worship this new king. But in the back of his mind, this evil man, and he is evil by all standards, um, he is going to try to find who this out and is going to kill this new king. So the major are told that the baby is going to be born in Bethlehem. And so they go to Bethlehem and there they give gifts to uh, the baby Jesus, to the family. And this is symbolic of Jesus being for all people, for Gentiles. The Magi are warned. They go through a different way uh, back home and bypass Jerusalem, the capital city. When Herod finds out he has been uh, duped, uh, that they didn't come back and tell him where the king exactly was, he goes and he institutes what we call the slaughter of the holy innocents, uh, all the baby boys two years and younger in Bethlehem. 
Um, but Mary and Joseph, the homely family, are warned in a dream, and they go back to Egypt. And this is not the first time we've seen Jewish people go into Egypt, probably like the third or fourth time that they go there. And we see this pattern of Jesus who is going to follow in the footsteps of Israel. He is going to go down to Egypt and then re return. He's going to go into the wilderness. We'll find out that this in the next session. And he's going to do what the Israelites could not do. He is going to uh, stave off uh, temptation. He is the perfect Israel, the one who's going to not fall into sin and his righteousness is going to replace our righteousness because as we've said just about every day this semester, it's about the two kinds of righteousness, either righteousness by law, dead end, our righteousness by faith, where Christ does all the work for us. So the visit of the Magi. But I'd like to end, if you if you want, Wade, on, on this character, John the Baptist. We'll get to the baptism of Jesus next time, but what, what is John the Baptist all about? Um, why is he so weird? What is his preaching all about? And eventually, how is he how is he going to be killed? You got anything about John the... Should we call him John the Baptist or John the Baptizer? What do you think? I'd call him John the Lutheran. John the Lutheran, as we all know. But that's offensive. We don't know if... Usually I say gonna... John the Baptist, who is really a Lutheran. <laughs> this is a joke, of course. Um, but... Uh, what we mean by John the Baptist or the baptizer is he's the one that's going to baptize Jesus, and we'll talk about that in, in next session. Um, but just describe him. What does he look like? What's his preaching all about? Well, really his person and what he does is meant to be reflective of the Old Testament prophets um, and especially reflective of Elijah. Um, and so uh, people would identify him with those Old Testament prophets, which we see him doing. Um, the idea that he's in the wilderness has a lot of uh, symbolism from the Old Testament as well, but especially echoing uh, Isaiah. Um, he's going to be in rough dress. He's eating locusts for food, so he's not going to Trader Joe's. Um, he's baptizing in the Jordan, which will be a uh, John's baptism, obviously, is a forerunner of Jesus' baptism. Uh, but especially his message, we'll see, is one of repentance, and it's Christological. I would say... Um, the reason John was sent was to do what every good preacher is called to do was the moment when he's able to say, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. <clears throat> and we uh, we then echo John the Baptist um, every time in the divine service when the sacrament is celebrated, uh, when we sing, O Christ, Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In fact, in the uh, older liturgies, the pastor then often would hold the elements and say, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. <clears throat> and then we would sing the Agnus Dei and receive the sacrament. But he is called to be the the last great prophet of the Old Testament period. And like all the prophets, his purpose is fully realized um, in that moment where his, uh, his finger is able to extend and he's able to point us to the Savior. And the imagery, imagery there is making the, the, the path smooth, right? Like put in the potholes and... and down the hills and stuff so here comes the uh, here comes the king and and so we began this session with this step parallelism so that we have this this uh, annunciation of Jesus uh, John the Baptist birth to Zachariah who doesn't believe it but then we have annunciation to Mary and she believes it it's just a little bit different it's a little bit better and then we have the the birth of John the baptizer which is a, a miracle in itself because his his mother was old and never had any children uh, and yet then we have the birth of of Jesus which is shakes up the both of them shake up the world but John only in his community Jesus the whole world Caesar Augustus is is 
in in this and quite frankly it's a virgin birth it's a different kind of miracle it's a better miracle and we end with this that there's a, the last step parallelism is in the preaching and the baptism of John and Jesus that John's baptism and his preaching was in preparation for the real thing and Jesus is the real thing he's not just talking about it he is the message that the, he's not just a prophet who speaks the word of God he is the word of God he is the message and I usually end this with a, just a quick just to put a a uh, 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 a tie onto uh, John the Baptist. I go out of order a little bit, but we we jump ahead and we and we hear about uh, John the Baptist dying. Um, uh, John the Baptist, like a good uh, like a good uh, prophet, is a thorn in uh, the side of the leader. Speaks uh, truth to power. Yeah, truth, truth to power, power and calling out the leaders for their um, for their debauchery and so there's another Herod in place right now in by later in uh, John's adult life and uh, he has called out uh, him and his his wife for a specific sin now I'm blanking on the specific sin that he took his brother's wife yeah, was that it yep. he took his brother's wife and so his brother's wife is is very um, uh, angry and uh, uh, Herod is having a party and uh, and the daughter uh, is dancing and he and he finds this great and he's probably drinking he says I will give you anything this is awesome I'll give you half the kingdom and remember what we said that it could be a debaucherous uh, time in the ancient Near East but people kept their word that was a big deal in an oath and he made an oath and he kind of liked John he didn't kind of hate John the Baptist he was kind of more curious about it is his, his brother's wife um, that was that was angry at John the Baptist and so Salome uh, uh, the the dancer uh, asks uh, it'd be her mother right that what do you, what should I ask the king for and he says she says John the Baptist head on a platter and Herod doesn't want to do this this is going to be not lost a great, his head to gain a crown the church yeah. like to say and he's not you know he doesn't want to do this he doesn't want any trouble and and he has at least fair of saying this guy didn't do anything. But he's got to keep his word, and so John is beheaded. And so uh, the first martyr of the church, we don't always call him the first martyr. We usually call uh, Stephen the first martyr of the church, but uh, maybe John should be considered the first martyr of the church. He dies uh, for the for, for the cause. And so he does have a demise, an, an interesting guy. But uh, as Jesus said, no one greater that has ever been uh, has ever lived born of woman than uh, John the Baptist, his cousin, his cousin who leapt in his mother's womb, uh, when Mary came to visit and uh, who had his head on a platter at the end, but now gains a crown in heaven. Hey, thanks for listening. We're going to keep doing this. And I want to thank uh, Dr. Johnson for giving uh, kind of a live give and take. This is better than just a straight lecture. And so keep listening. Um, keep doing your homework. And um, until uh, we meet again in this electronic version, uh, in this electronic fashion, let the bird fly. <laughs>